Welcome to the Universe in a Glass, the podcast where we trade drinks with friends and share the stories behind our favorite beverages. As always, we are joining you from the historic Line Hotel in the heart of Adams Morgan, uh, joined today by Sherman Thatcher, owner and winemaker at uh, Thatcher Winery in Paso Robles, California. Sherman comes from a long, proud line of California farmers. He grew up on a citrus grove in Ventura and got his start in the beverage industry as an award-winning brewer in Los Gatos after graduating from UC Davis. Wanting to raise a family of his own on the land, he and his wife purchased Paso Robles' historic Kentucky ranch and launched Thatcher Winery in 2008. They work with heritage grapes best suited to their hot, dry climate and a non-interventionist style that delivers uniformly fresh, food-friendly wines. Thank you for joining us, Sherman. Yeah, thanks for having us. Uh, how was that introduction? That was perfect. Good. Love Excellent. it. Excellent. Yep. Um, uh, normally, uh, we trade back and forth, but uh, today I wanted to... Uh, double down on Sherman's offering. So we're featuring uh, a couple different cuvées uh, that depart from the typical Paso Robles script. We're in a hot, dry corner of the world, renowned for dense, inky reds, but we are popping the cork on two wildly refreshing wines from lesser-known, uh, at least as far as most American consumers are concerned, varietals. We have Thatcher's Sanso and Val de Gay, uh, and uh, they unlock, um, you know, uh, some delightful stories about California's viticultural past and uh, illuminate um, some of the hurdles facing the state's growers uh, as we go forward. Uh, we will taste through both bottles while riffing on life and wine along the way, and then I'll close things out with a bit of verse. Uh, before we dive into the wines, a few questions, Sherman, uh, about uh, your deep roots in California ag uh, agriculture. Uh, when did your family first come out to the Golden State? So my great-grandfather moved out from the East Coast, uh, probably around, I'm going to guess, I don't know exactly, but about 1860, 1870s, something like that. And was, he moved, uh, was he, you know, searching for gold at this point in time? Or no, he was just, just looking, looking to, yeah, move out and start an orchard. And um, he was, uh, you know, deeply rooted out here in the East Coast, but uh, he uh, had, he was a Yale graduate and... Uh, and basically, when he started his farm out in Ojai growing uh, olive oil or olive trees and avocados, he, uh, he wanted his kids to, you know, head back to the, you know, the school that he was affiliated with. And uh, so he started teaching them at home. And then he, some of his uh, neighbors basically said, hey, you know, can you teach my kids? And then so he ended up starting a, a boarding school. And he's actually so, uh, you know, for the sake of doing research for this recipe, he is uh, the first Sherman, Sherman Thatcher that comes up when uh, uh, you Google uh, yep, Sherman Thatcher. Exactly. Yeah. So I, I don't dress like that guy. Well, you're um, giving him a run for his money, though. I think your search <laughs> results are, uh, are rising, whereas his are, are static. I'm working on it. Yeah, exactly. So. Um, so anyway, yeah, he he ended up starting a boarding school, and um, yeah, it's called uh, Ojai. It's called Thatcher School. Oh, it's called Thatcher School. Oh, yeah, cool. and uh, it still exists in Ojai, and um, yeah, he also helped. He was kind of one of the first in the area, and he also helped start a couple of the other schools, or at least you know help the headmasters or or founders uh, get their stuff together to to help. Was there a particular philosophy here? Are these like Waldorf schools or, you know, is there like a Thatcher school movement? I, I don't believe so, but it, it basically became one of the, the West Coast feeder 
you know, preparatory schools oh, uh, for Yale and um, uh, kind of like Eaton College vibes, perhaps. Yeah. yeah so yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Uh, did you go to school there yourself? I didn't. I uh, what I like to tell people is that I I was a, the black sheep, and uh, that's why I'm out making hooch in the hills now. So, <laughs> but uh, yeah, both my brothers went. My dad, my uncle, my grandfather. So that's a lot of that's a lot of, of pressure. Yeah, for the sake so. of the legacy. <laughs> So, no, I was, I was happy with the school I went to, which was a, a similar school. It was a boarding school, but um, a little north of Thatcher. And it was actually, if you look at the back of the sign on the boarding school, the sign that uh, they have out in front called Midland School, it was given by my great-grandfather to Midland because they didn't have a real sign when they first started. And it, so Sherman Thatcher's etched in the back of it. Oh, wow. That's kind of cool. Uh, so, is it I like mean, a fierce rivalry between Midlands and Thatcher? Not really, no. Okay. They're kind of... Um, it's definitely on sports field. They're on different levels. So, okay. uh, yeah, Midland's a little bit, it's a, it's a much smaller school. So okay, we, we generally had co-ed teams and um, we were just out there getting exercise more than anything. Participation but, medals more than <laughs> yeah, uh, competing exactly. for championships. A, um, uh, how did you uh, come to go back to the land? You know, growing up on a citrus orchard, did you always know that, uh, you know, a life on the land was in your future or did it kind of come as a surprise? Well, I, I, I loved growing up in an orchard. Um, I will also say that my high school did have a big influence on me. We lived in log cabins. Oh, we, cool. we had wood-burning stoves. Like, honest to God, log cabins? Oh, yeah. Uh, well, they were pretty close. Like, it, it wasn't bougie, actually... Bougie it wasn't log cabins. Yeah, well, they, it definitely wasn't that. There was no heating, you know, but yeah. uh, we had wood-burning stoves. So we, we could go out. We would harvest wood on weekends. We'd bring it down and chop it and... Not only did we heat our rooms that way, but we heated our hot water that way. So oh, wow. we were on a rotation um, about once every 10 or 12 days. You would have to do a shower fire and you'd cut wood and, and you're in charge of the hot water for that day. So if you're playing sports, you would go out to practice, but then you'd run back and check on your fire and um, make sure the water was hot for everyone when they came in after sports. And just living out in the country rustically like that, I mean, we were... We were allowed to bring our animals. Uh, you could bring dogs, cats. Uh, I brought a. Sh you could bring shotguns and go hunting <laughs> on weekends. I mean, it was you know it was pretty rustic. So you had a shotgun in your dorm room. I uh, well, I wasn't allowed to keep it, but I was allowed to go use it on weekends yeah. and and uh, go hunting if we wanted to. And um, so it was. It just uh, living out in the country is it was something I always wanted to do and get back to um, after getting through college and living in more urban settings. So, so it was habit for forming and you yeah. felt kind of like a fish yeah. out of water in a more urban environment. Yeah. And currently, you know, in my house, I, it's a whole game every winter trying to keep the house warm with, yeah. with just wood, you know, I, I it's a challenge. So oh, cool. I, I love it. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Um, you went to UC Davis, did you not? Correct. Uh, what did you study there? International relations. So, oh, wow. Yeah, how, yeah. how did you land on IR? Um, Honestly, I, college was not a priority for me. <laughs> uh, it was a very social thing, and um, about halfway through college, it was the basically the co the closest major I was um, okay you, you, to graduating. You were closest in, so. to the finish line. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, yeah. Let's um, pick a direction and, and finish it up. So that said, you happen to go to the premier academic institution for viticulture in the United States. Uh, did that rub it off at all? Well, yes, because uh, one of my buddies was going through the program there, yeah. and I used to go in and hang out with him um, when he was doing projects, and 
help him taste and consume his and other students' projects. Sometimes he's like, he, he also did fermentation science, which was uh, more geared towards brewing, and then also was working with enology and viticulture. So we, uh, we'd go hang out, and he'd be doing various things, and we'd pop beers and taste those. And I feel like it's a lot so. more fun to proofread your you know, <laughs> yeah. fellow students' papers when uh, yeah. that constitutes trying beer and wine. Yeah, and so that kind of translated into his job following college, and then uh, he hired me as his assistant. Uh, this was in 92. He became brewmaster at a, a brewery called Los Gatos Brewing Company, and then uh, the following year, he had worked harvest up in Santa Cruz Mountains a couple times, and he said, hey, you know, let's go out and buy some fruit and make a little wine, and I said, okay, of course. Oh, that's know. awesome. So you were always kind of interested in fermentables, regardless of the the source you weren't like a grain guy necessarily or a grape guy you were just in it for you know the production yeah I mean, it's like cooking you know you're just it's uh you're you're making something and and eating or drinking it and uh and i think there's a lot of satisfaction you know involved with something like that so yeah brilliant now um what kind of lessons did you learn as a brewer uh, that you've kind of subsequently applied to your career as a winemaker, especially given that, you know, you're coming not necessarily from um, a brewing background or a fermentation background? Well, with brewing, you have to be extremely careful. Um, yeah. Beers can take the wrong turn very easily. And uh, so cleanliness is, is paramount. And, uh, and so th that... You know, with wine, it, it's a, a different beast for sure. It's got higher alcohols, lower pHs. It's less likely, you know, less sugar. It's so, less likely to go awry. Correct. It's, uh, you, can, um, you can take some shortcuts if you want, but realistically, if you apply all the, the things that I, at least I learned during brewing to winemaking, it's just gonna, you're going to end up with a cleaner product. Oh, fascinating. So, so you, yep. you felt like you had to be more scrupulous as a, you know, you're making cellar master than you know you are as a as a winemaker yeah but i you know i try and install the same practices yeah. and keep everything uh, i mean it, we literally if we were dragging a hose in the brewery and we dropped the end of the hose and you know the the end of the hose probably didn't touch anything because um the way the hoses are it does, it's not like stuff jumped inside the hose but yeah. we would spend 20 minutes and re-sterilize the hose oh just because we really needed to ensure there's, that it was clean. less margin for error. So um, we don't maybe necessarily do that in the winery, but we'll clean it out again and, yeah. and just ensure that there's nothing in there that isn't supposed to be in there. So, yeah. It's the same with tanks, same with all the fittings. Yeah. So, and, and it's actually been super interesting now um, because we are making a couple of things. Uh, we make some estate cider, well, you do kind of like apple grape chimeras too, don't you? We did a apple grape um, on the first uh, cider attempt, basically. And oh, yeah. It was just a small amount. It was about seven percent Alicante Boucher, which we grow on the on the property. And really, I just added it more to make it more festive and have some color to it. Oh, cool. uh, but uh, this last version that we just bottled uh, a little while ago is one hundred percent apples. And no, but I, you know. Before this, I went down a couple of years ago and bought a cylindroconical uh, beer fermenter, and uh, just because I can uh, ferment it kind of the same way we did beer, you know, you, yeah. you you put in your base and and let it ferment, and then you seal up the tank before it's just before it's dry, 
and let it naturally carbonate inside the tank, turn on the chiller and have all the yeast drop out of the bottom and, and pull out a clean product above. And, you know, in most winery tanks, they, you can't have pressure. So it, uh, it, was, it was pretty easy. It was like riding a bike when it came to figuring those things no, out. Awesome. And when it gave you something to drink, you know, at the end of the day during harvest. Yep. So That's awesome. Now, um, how did you ultimately pivot from beer as your kind of primary, um, you know, source of emphasis uh, or, or point of emphasis for the sake of fermentation to uh, wine? You said you were, you know, kind of playing around with wine while you were at Los Gatos. What grapes were you working with? We were working primarily with Zinfandel, mm -hmm. um, and the first grapes we harvested were from a vineyard planted in 1910. Oh, wow. Up head-trained, dry-farmed uh, vines up in the Santa Cruz Mountains, and, and that was just a really great place to start. Yeah. We, uh, How did you get access to that fruit? We were just knew the people that, uh, you know, were running the winery at the time. We nice. knew the, the winemaker, and they said, oh, we can, you know, let you have a little bit of this. So we, you know, we bought one ton and made a couple barrels, and that went well. And then the following year, we bought a little bit more. And, and we did... Uh, expand into Chardonnay. We did Pinot Noir one day or one year. We basically, we, we bounced around. We were, you know, typical transient winemakers, you know, yeah. you're there for a year or two. And then the winery says, oh no, we need that space back. Uh, you're going to have to move out. And so we bump over to someone else who thought it would be convenient. And then they eventually uh, realized that it really wasn't that convenient <laughs> and, uh, you know, give you the, the papers to move on as well. But, uh, so we, we were at a winery that originally it was called Congress Springs. It changed hands a couple times, became Mariani, and, and it's currently called Savannah Chanel. But uh, that's where we, we got our first Zin and made wine there for two years. And then we bounced over to a winery called David Bruce that kind of specializes in Pinot Noir. We, we kept making Zin, but, you know, if they brought in some fruit and we thought, oh, man, that's kind of cool. Can we, you know, buy a little bit off the back of the truck? They were usually happy to let us have, you know, token amount. And so we, we did our experimenting and, um, yeah, it was fun. Uh, what were those wines like? I mean, were you applying more commercial winemaking practices? Were you just kind of making the sourdough bread of the, the wine world for it, second native yeast or? Uh, no, it, we were definitely conventional. My, yeah. uh, my, my buddy who I was making wine with coming from UC Davis, he, pretty much had the, the student blinders on and, yeah. and uh, you know, this is exactly, you know, where we're going to pick it. This is, you know, bricks, acid, whatever. Um, this is the yeast we're going to use. These are the temperatures we're going to do. It was all very regimented and, you know, I didn't know any better. So, uh, but, uh, you know, the beauty of making wine at all these different places is one winemaker's doing it this way, one winemaker's doing it this way, and you just start kind of getting your game plan together and, and you, and you know, what you don't realize initially when you first either start making it or come from school, you know, there's just one way and it's very linear. Yeah. And, uh, but, it, you know, the longer you're out there and the more experiences you have, you realize, you know, just like being a chef, you can make your clam chowder with potatoes or without potatoes or whatever. And the, the results may all be delicious, but they're, they will be different. But uh, you just kind of take what you think is important and uh, leave the other stuff aside. So. Yeah, and I imagine coming from brewing, too, you know, I think of making beer is really scrupulous. It's almost like, you know, baking. You know, you, you really specifically measure out all your inputs. You know, you're controlling, you know, temperature, yeast, pretty much, you know, fine-tuning every moment in that entire process where, 
you know, I think making wine's a little more like working with a really nice cut of meat and, you know, getting a sense for, you know, how it, how it behaves on the grill. And you can kind of have an initial idea of how that all is going to suss out, but you could end up with, you know, a different kind of steak than, than you thought you were initially. For sure. And, and just, just not panicking, you know, it's, and it's just something you have to learn over time. You know, your, your wine doesn't go dry in the prescribed week or two weeks or however long it typically takes. For us, you know, with native yeast, we're usually looking about two weeks if, if the weather's warm, but uh, we make Zin, and Zin likes to do whatever it wants to do. And, and honestly, we have probably the majority of our Zins go dry in the following spring. Yeah. So it gets cold at the end of the season, everything slows down and just stops. You're like, wow, we still have all the sugar in there. Um, but, you know, come April, March, April, it starts warming up. You know, you got doors open. All of a sudden, bungs start popping out. And, oh, boy, they're going again, you know. And, yeah. and then you can finally put them away and, and, and um, let them age and, and do whatever you're going to do post-fermentation. It's it very much a test of faith to have the strength of conviction just to kind of let them go. For sure. I mean, I, uh, Grenache Blanc has, has been... Uh, definitely another varietal that we've had issues with going dry initially and um, I don't know one of the more recent ones we had it took a full year it, it went dry during the following harvest oh wow and, and we just you know we check it periodically but you know not that regularly and um, but you know it smelled intact there was still it still had a little tiny bit of um, CO2 on top so you, you could tell that it was it wasn't getting oxidized and uh then harvest started and, you know, our, our harvest blinders went on and we're just kind of focusing on the fruit coming in. And at the end of harvest, we taste it again. We're all of a sudden we're like, whoa, wait a minute. It's not sweet anymore. And so, uh, yeah. A funny, and, a funny and, thing happened while you were harvesting. Your pretty grapes. interesting uh, wine, but, uh, you know, not, not super off, off the tracks. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, how did you land in Casa Robles after, you know, forging a career in Los Gatos? So my wife, I was making beer up in, in Los Gatos and making a little wine up in the hills. And uh, my wife went down to UCSB and went to college there. And so we'd often meet on weekends. And we generally met in Paso Robles. Oh, about, you were meeting in the middle? Yeah, meeting in the middle. And we did try King City, which is uh, a little bit further north. And there's okay. not really anything there. And that was uh, not a good idea. There was, uh, <laughs> <laughs> we literally we went in to get a... a a beer at a bar I bet, once. I bet land was cheaper though. And yeah, well, it's like the whole bar just froze and stared at us for like ten minutes. I mean, I felt like I saw cigarettes burn into people's <laughs> people's hands, and and so yeah, we decided that was not a a, a good place to meet. So um, Pastor Robles was kind of kind of our place, and we go wine tasting. We we started making connections down there, and you know, because I was making a little wine, so the conversation would always kind of spark at one point or another, and um, it was a lot more similar to where I grew up down in Ojai and where I went to high school down in San Inez area. So it, it was a v more familiar, you know, oak trees and rolling hills and not redwoods. And, and oh, so, okay. So it felt like coming home to you a little bit. Yeah, for sure. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Um, and then you purchased a historic property. Yeah, we a portion of it. It, it was a f either 4,000 or 4,500, uh, acre, um, Spanish land grant. And, uh, a couple guys from Kentucky. You didn't get the entire hacienda. No, we uh, we we got about fifty acres, but um, yeah, it's a really neat parcel. Yeah. And it honestly, 
it's out on the west side of Paso. It's on Vineyard Drive. It's a very desirable area to be in, but um, the property itself is low. It's cooler. A lot of cold air drains down there. We have thicker soils. So uh, it wasn't necessarily the ideal place to plant grapes, but as far as a winery setting, it, it couldn't be better. And uh, so at the time, I wasn't farming. You know, I was, we were sourcing all our fruit, so yeah. it wasn't a priority for me. I just wanted a, you know, an awesome setting for a winery, and I, I'm very comfortable purchasing grapes. Um, we planted about five acres out there, um, and, and then recently have planted another 15 in a more desirable area. And yeah. so we have a, a separate estate vineyard that we source a good portion of our grapes from now. So Yeah, I mean, and Paso Robles is pretty massive. I didn't realize it was quite as big a geographical footprint as yeah. it is. I mean, it's like three times the size of Napa. Yeah, it's, it's huge. And they just recently in the last, I don't know, it's, I'm not really good at my timelines, probably eight years ago or something, or maybe even longer, divided it up into sub-AVAs. So we've got 11 sub-AVAs. I saw that. Yeah, they, so. they went like whole board. They went from like no yeah. sub-AVAs to all the sub-AVAs. And it's, <laughs> and it's still developing itself. I mean, most people don't really understand what... Know your American viticultural areas. Yeah. It's everybody's favorite parlor game. Yeah. So, but uh, it is cool. Um, I think down the road, it will be a little bit more useful. And it's, yeah. as I said, it's just kind of... So many people are, were so used to buying grapes from all over Paso. Uh, it, you know, a lot of times you're buying, if you're making a blend, you're buying them from two different AVAs anyway. So it's just going to say, or sub AVAs, it's going to just say Paso Robles anyway. But, um, well, no, and you want, you want people to develop a fuller appreciation for, you know, the diversity of what's going on there. Yep. And, and I'm sure to the growers at some point, you know, if you're in two wildly different parts of the region, to call them post, to call them both Paso feels almost meaningless. Yeah. I, well, I, Maybe, yeah, to a certain degree, but um, I also just feel like it's it's so young right now that um, people are just getting to know Paso yeah. and 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 it being div divided up is and will be more more and more helpful. But I think uh, currently it's just people are still just figuring out where Paso is. So yeah, yeah. now um, I think to the extent that most consumers know of Paso Robles, I think you know the. Um, you know, the typical Paso Robles wine that comes to mind is something, you know, kind of bigger, denser, fuller, whether it's Zin, whether it is, uh, you know, from, from Rhone grapes, um, but, you know, densely extracted, fuller-bodied kind of wine. And that's not what we have in the glass here. We have uh, Sunso. Um, you know, how did you come to work with this grape? And, you know, how is it different maybe than some of the other wines that come out of the region? So when I first got to Paso, the plan was to make actually probably just five different Zins. I, that's what I'd been making up in Santa Cruz. Yeah. We started um, making a little bit of Syrah up there as well. And uh, Paso was kind of known for Zin at the time. So I, uh, that was kind of what I had in the back of my head. But then when I got down there and started making wine in Paso Robles, I basically was in a wine um, warehouse or whatever where there was maybe 15 or 20 different wineries that had little footprints within this acre building. And so, uh, yeah, so yeah, kind of like a custom crush. Kind of, yeah, but a lot of us had our own, like so, there were complete wineries in there who had their own equipment and everything. Oh, wow. and, and literally, uh, they, um, and then there was people like myself who didn't have even a pump. So you could borrow that stuff from the facility or you could go in there and have your license and be a complete winery and um, not have to use anything. Oh, that's awesome. So we, you know, we shared forklifts, pumps, uh, distemmers, fermenters, everything. And uh, 
and everyone had kind of varying various amounts of equipment and it was it was a really it was a great environment because there was lots of different wineries um, doing different things yeah lots of different um, inputs if you had a problem you could go get you know someone's uh, thoughts on different things and uh, and uh, yeah it was just a good launching po point where you you could make wine but not have to invest all that capital initially yeah. into it and kind of gradually buy things that you thought were important over time so uh, so in 2006 we did our our vintage there and um, it was it was great I I just uh, sniffed around saw what other people were buying and and eventually started oh where'd you get that wow that tastes amazing uh, you know and so I gotta go talk to that person and quickly kind of out of that place I you know I think in 2000 in 2006 I made Syrah and Zinfandel in 2007 I made Grenache, Morved, Syrah's in, um, Viognier, I think. So, you know, I just uh, started expanding and, and Rhone's were really taking off at that time. Um, our, our neighbors down in Paso, uh, Tablas Creek, has, had yeah. really had a, a massive influence on the area, just bringing in all these cuttings and uh, well, and, and they have a close working relationship with Chapoutier, which is, you know, one of the foremost producers in the Southern Rhone. Yeah, and the, well, the Chateau Beaucastel. Oh, Beaucastel. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, so they got a lot of their cuttings from, from their vineyard, um, or probably all of them. And I've tasted with them a million times. They're going to be a hard time about that uh, faux pas. <laughs> and uh, anyway, and they're um, very proactive. They're very helpful. They, they, they want everyone else to, you know, succeed. So that they're generous and, and great neighbors. And um, so anyway, because of that, I started experimenting more and more with Rhone's. And, yeah. and that was kind of a, the main focus coming um, back to our wine room when it was finally completed and we were able to open it in, in 2008. So, uh, Rhone's were kind of a focus and Zin, you know, I, I, we still make quite a bit. I think 30% of what we make is Zin still, but, uh, uh, for a while, 70% was, was Rhone's and now we're starting to deviate yet further. And, and so back to the Sinso, uh, that is a Rhone varietal. Um, it's often found in blends, but, uh, We've really enjoyed making it varietally, and uh, it's very expressive. It's a uh, it's a fun grape. Uh, we honestly uh, we make our, our, all our, our rosés 100% Cinso as well. I mean, that's the kind of you know most popular um, expression of Cinso that people are likely to find on the market. Is like the classic Provencal rosé is typically Cinso dominant. Yeah, so um, we love we love it, and and honestly, I think this year I'm going to make uh, make a white wine out of it, and um, oh, like we'll, a Blanc de Noir. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, cool. We'll bring it in, direct press it, and uh, and let it sit because you know we picked this pretty early, especially on Paso standards. We're eighteen and a half bricks. So a lot of people are picking you know twenty five, twenty six bricks. Um, in I Paso, mean, that, that gives you a potential alcohol of what fourteen, fifteen percent. So where we pick it, we're at about 13. Yeah. Um, 24 is probably um, right around f 14, yeah. uh, 14 and a half. And then, yeah, I mean, it's kind of, I don't know the scale off the top of my head, but it, <laughs> it, it also depends on how dry it goes. You know, yeah. a lot of times there's, if you have good acidity, you might have some residual sugar and you don't yeah. really know it's still sweet. And, um, and, but the alcohol is not as high because it hasn't technically gone dry. So... But uh, the reason it came into the house was uh, my assistant winemaker had, had made a couple runs down to um, South Africa 
And it's the most widely planted red varietal in South Africa. And he came back one year, and you know, I said, hey, you know, what, what are you guys doing down there? Let's, uh, let's do some stuff. And um, he said, well, I think we should find some Cinso. It's, uh, uh, it's an amazing grape. And so we, we, we sourced some, and uh, I, we kind of, I feel like we nailed it on the first year. We, yeah. you know, usually I, we had some Syrah that we made every year for, I don't know, 17 years or something, same vineyard, same block. And we did a lot of experimenting probably for the first 12 or 13 years, you know, just like, how are we going to make this this year, you know? And finally we kind of dialed it in. But um, with this one, we, we did it one way in uh, 2015 and we were just, super excited so i will say in 16 we picked it quite a bit earlier just to see what that would do and yeah, yeah. i think our um our finishing alcohol on that was 10.2 oh wow <laughs> and uh did, did it taste green or uh? um it didn't necessarily taste green but um and it had a lot of the similar flavors it just was a little bit lean on the palate yeah. and we just felt like uh it just needed a little bit more body yeah. uh, which is what the alcohol would and also just the general ripening would provides more body and structure to it so um so we kind of bounced back to our original pick uh time and this the one we're drinking is hovering around what 12 percent alcohol or yeah let's i don't know let's look at the bottle yeah, i mean it, it works whatever it is yeah but, um I, I generally think of sanso as kind of a later ripener um when are you picking in in paso well uh month wise we're probably picking it in uh, definitely in september okay so uh it's a heavy producing um grapes so kind of like Grenache it, it often carries quite a bit of uh, fruit and you can drop it down but it just it's not going to help it that much it's not yeah. going to overly concentrate it's a big berry uh, so so that being said it it might push a little bit later but it's it's only later because of the crop load I, okay. I, I feel so um, as far as uh, numbers we pick it pretty early as I said it's around yeah. 18 or 18 and a half bricks and uh, and we we start it carbonically, or actually, yeah, start it carbonically. We bring it in, and we don't process it at all. We um, put it in a fermenter and purge all the oxygen out and seal it up and leave it back in our barrel room, which sits at about um, 60 degrees. And after about five or six days, uh, you know, we'll go back there and check on it periodically. But it's usually around five, six, seven days. It'll start fermenting on its own. And um, at that point, we'll wheel it back out into our, our main room and pop the lid. And we're very gentle with this wine because we are doing 100% whole cluster. Oh, awesome. And, uh, and I feel that really helps with this wine because it is a big berry. It's a pretty juicy grape. And... Uh, without having that stem inclusion, we're, we're, we're gonna be without a lot of the spice and maybe yeah. a lot of the kind of structure. And, and it would be a super fun wine, you know, without yeah. all that, but I, I think it just, it makes it It'd be a, a little, little more, more like one note. Yeah, it's a little more interesting yeah. having all that in there and it works and so, and it's not overbearing, but as I said, with fermentation, we're not doing punch downs three times a day or yeah. we will do a couple pump overs. We maybe punch down once every three days uh, at the beginning of fermentation, we might do a couple more later because what happens is the stems start to lignify. Yeah. They're not they're not going to be as prone to releasing these green characteristics. So uh, we we'll we'll do a couple more punch downs just to break up the cap. But uh, and then uh, we'll often leave it uh, with a little extended maceration. So it will go t you know dr the juice will go dry, and uh, we'll 
seal it up and maybe put it back in our barrel room for another week. Oh, wow. Two weeks max. And, you know, we're not really trying to over-extract it, but, yeah. uh, but just let it kind of sit. And well, I like that, too, because this doesn't have, um, you know, some carbonic, carbonically, you know, macerated wines, you know, they're little one note. You know, they, they kind of go to the same place regardless of what grape they come from. Uh, this has some of that carbonic freshness, but it, it still tastes recognizably sun so to me for the sake of the aromatics, for the sake of perfume, for the sake of like a, a certain like, um, you know, dried herbal streak. And it just, it just starts that way. We do um, also make some carbonic wines. And actually when we get to the Valdegay, um, half, half of that crop we pick a couple weeks early and we do 100% carbonically but with that we would seal it up and we'd leave it for five or six weeks and not touch it at all yeah. and then you just throw it in the press and and run it into a barrel whereas this we do as I said a normal fermentation we'll do some um, delastage or we'll uh, do some pump overs and just to gently move the liquid yeah. around and keep the cap uh, wet so we're still keeping that intact um, and then in terms of uh, you know how you age this wine I read you're working in both cement and uh, clay, clay uh, kind of vessels. Yeah, so we are definitely experimenting with different vessels. I mean, all these different things are going to create different wines, and, yeah. and it, um, it's a lot more fun. Even if you're, you're working with the same lot and the same grapes, it's a lot more fun putting that wine together when you have two or three different versions of the same thing and you can decide the percentages more often than not it all goes back together yeah but uh i mean we will definitely taste it and go oh you know what this might be a little bit overpowering and we'll pull some out and maybe put it somewhere else i mean we'll use Cinso in our gsm blend so oh, heard. um if we feel like something's a little bit too uh, severe or like way down yeah exactly yeah. and yeah. and in one of the aging vessels then we'll um peel a little bit off and put it somewhere else but uh this one uh, we do we did it in amphora um, and also just uh, super neutral barrels okay. uh, punchins basically yeah. so larger format barrels they breathe you know the ratio of wine to oak is quite a bit less and so um, they oxidize at a slower rate you know the bigger the vessel the more fresh your wine is going to be and with this wine we feel it's super important we uh, we bottle it after about eleven months. So it's a year program, basically, and we just empty out the vessels right before the following harvest and then refill them again with, you know, maybe the same stuff. So uh, we do have some concrete now, and that's going to be more and more integrated. Uh, we just, it, it, it just rotates, and, uh, yeah. you know, it, it's not necessarily each program is set in stone, you know, yeah. like, oh, well, that's still full of something, you know, let's put it in this. But um, practical considerations that work here, too. Yeah, so... Um, but uh, it's been doing great uh, in those two different vessels. They age differently. They, um, you know, as far as freshness, they're different. The oak yeah. probably, you know, it, it depends on your amphora. Uh, they are going to breathe at different rates. The thickness of the amphora, the temperature at which it, at which it was kilned is going to um, either speed up or slow down or even halt any kind of uh, oxidation. So um, I think that varies, and amphoras are kind of sourced from all over the place, but yeah. ours is Italian, and, and that's pretty normal to have an Italian amphora, so. That's awesome. Now, um, we have a, a different wine uh, in the mix. That's uh, Valdegay, yep. um, uh, which is uh, another grape that uh, figured prominently in California's early history, but I would say most consumers are not familiar with. Um, uh, historically known as uh, California Gamay or Gamay Beaujolais in the area. It wasn't until 
uh, last couple decades that it was correctly identified as Valdecay, which is this um, esoteric um, uh, southern French varietal um, that uh, had happened to, you know, find a home uh, in parts of California. And, and there were still, you know, these older plantings um, uh, throughout particularly the northern part of the state uh, that uh, people are now taking cutting from and, and, and rediscovering. How did you come to work with Valdegay? Well, again, I, I'll uh, turn to my, uh, my assistant that was with, with me for 10 years. He, uh, he also wanted to work with Chenin Blanc, which was another South African oh, yeah, thing. Yeah. And uh, so we went out, and I had heard of this uh, vineyard because uh, David Bruce, the winery I'd worked with, or worked, rented space from up in the uh, Santa Cruz Mountains, had been working with Petit Syrah from this vineyard down in Paso Robles for years, um, Shell Creek Vineyard. And uh, so we were out sniffing around the Chenin Blanc, which, uh, you know, is really fun, own rooted 50 year old plants. We, uh, uh, the, the guy, the son who uh, is the person we buy all the fruit from, uh, said, hey, let's go check this out. We also have some Valdegay out here. And we're like, oh, okay. And I had never even really heard of it, to be honest. Yeah. And, but um, my, uh, my assistant had uh, his boss, um, Butch or Chris Allheit um, from yeah. down in South Africa, had an American uh, business that he was running with a friend up in Napa. And that guy um, has, yeah, a little, he, he has, like has a little Valdegay on yeah. his property. And so they, they were making some Valdegay and he's like, oh man, I've heard of that, but I don't know if he had ever tasted it before or not. But either way, we went out and, and so in both cases, we said, hey, we'd love to get some Shannon, we'd like to get some Valdegay. He said, the vineyard guy said, um, his name is Daniel Sinton. He said, uh, you know, sorry, we're sold out this year, but, um, you know, at harvest, if there's any extra, I'll, I'll let you know. And of course at harvest, he, you know, last minute he's like, Hey, we got some. And so we were able to get both that year. And then the next year we were luckily able to kind of get into contract with him. But, um, the Valdegay, as you said, California, um, Gamay or, or Napa Gamay was what oh, a yeah. lot of people really knew yeah. it by. And, uh, yeah, when Davis started doing DNA testing, they they somebody sent it in and they said, oh, you know, this isn't Gamay or from Napa, it's Valdegay, you know, from the south of France. So um, it, it found its way historically into a lot of hardy burgundies. So a lot of those big jug wines that like my parents probably drank um, would have a good chunk of Valdegay. And it, it's got a lot of, uh, it's got great texture. It's very approachable. So it's not tannic, it's not overly acidic, but it's got a lot of body, it's got great color. Um, so it's really a nice additive to, you know, if you're making something that's Pinot based or something that might be a little bit light in color, it's kind of like adding Petite Syrah to Zin, you know, yeah. um, it, in that effect, it, it can really fill in some middle palate and um, just make a nice lush <laughs> approachable wine. So um, I guess, you know, after it was kind of discovered that it wasn't Napa Gamay, and, and I think it also kind of happened to be at about the same time when Cabernet was just really, you know, taking force in California and, and farmers were realizing that, you know, it was worth maybe ripping out whatever vines and planting something that commanded a, a much bigger price and uh, was under a lot more demand. So sadly, uh, a lot of these varietals, you know, uh, and also along with the Cinso, um were ripped out and replaced with, with Bordeaux's. Um, just, just because of monetary reasons. Yeah, and I, so. I think people, you know, ascribe this like sinister intent to that process, but it's an economic consideration. Yep. I mean, if you can get, you know, 
just you know two times as much for you know an acre of Cabernet than Valdegay, you know you can't afford not to to switch what you're working with. Yeah, and it's probably quite a bit more than two times, <laughs> honestly. But uh, but uh, yeah, we were lucky enough to try it, and um, honestly, when we made this Valdegay, we got it in the barrel, and it was. You know, we don't barrel taste all the time, but, um, you know, whenever we did and we had, you know, someone coming in and we wanted to get into the barrels, we would go to that barrel first. Oh, cool. And, and I just, uh, I I'm, uh, decide I, we got to bottle this up or we're going to drink this whole barrel, you know, <laughs> so... So we uh, we did a year program on it. Um, so you, you hit on so it's kind of like this and so you kind of hit on that one pretty early as well. Yeah, and Valdegay is very forgiving. As I see, I feel you know, I honestly drinking that right out of the press. It's and I it, feel like there's so many different styles too. So I mean, I think about like um, you know Brock makes a Valdegay. It's very yep. different than than your wine. Um, and so I feel like it you know has these very different and diverse kind of, um, you know, faces, uh, depending on how different winemakers work with it. Exactly. And we, we do 30% whole cluster on it. Typically, um, we kind of felt like that was a pretty good portion. Uh, the first year we did some of it carbonically, some of it we did whole cluster and some we did distemmed. And, um, that just kind of gave us options at the end of the year and also just gave us, you know, information on what it was going to do in those kind of, yeah, situations. So, um, We've kind of brought it back down to um, really just doing it one way. So we've got 30% whole cluster. We press it, um, you know, very lightly. We have a basket press, which I think is great for red wines. It's, yeah. it's uh, you, you hear about press fractions where, you know, if you're in a bladder press, you press a little bit harder, a little bit harder, a little bit harder. And, um, you know, typically the wine is getting more tannic, a little bit more harsh. You're starting to extract these things out of stems or seeds or whatever, or skins. Um, in a, a bladder press, honestly, the wine almost gets sweeter and more approachable at the end because basically you're just pushing it through this big puck and it's like a, yeah. almost like a filter. Well, you're, you're and, not breaking anything up. Yeah. There's, and there's no tumbling. It's just one big press. And, um, so anyway, uh, the Valdegay right out of the press is, uh, you can almost, uh, it does need a little bit of time, but not that much. It's, you can just uh, drink it right out yeah, of the press. It's, it's yeah, it's pretty awesome. And I, I, so, I love wines like that. I mean, I, I find that uh, sometimes when you're tasting, um, you know, wine off the press, you have this, like, clear sense of what the wine's going to be. Um, and other times, you know, it's, it's a mystery. Um, and the, the ones, you know, tasting juice and just having this, you know, this just needs to ferment. We need to stand out of the way. That's a, kind of a fun moment. Yeah, and I'm, I, it's always exciting when we're pressing Valdegay because I just want to go, I'm like, hey, you know, we have people in the tasting room, I'm like, let's go over to the crush pad yeah, right I was, now. I was working like, with this uh, lot of Limburger that was, that was kind of like that. Um, it's just kind of like spicy and delicious in the best possible way. So uh, anyway, um, yeah, again, it's about the same program as a Cinso. We, we'll run it into uh, large punch-ins. And as I mentioned, we do have smaller concrete um, tanks. I just got a couple more last year, some Italian ones, and uh, we'll ferment in them. But as soon as we're done fermenting, we'll reload them with wine and, and age in them. And uh, the Valdegay will probably start spending some time in there as well. And then also with this grape, we, we do another half of it carbonically. So that, as I mentioned that's a little your, bit earlier. That's our Nouveau. That's our Nouveau. And yeah. our... Um, and it just it does have a lot of parallels to Gamay, and so it's it's really fun tasting. You can understand how it did get confused at one point or another, it's, and I don't know what it it's was. Than, it's different than Gamay, though. I feel like the character fruit is uh, 
like leaning more darker. I mean, it honestly, it reminds me kind of of like a more savage. Well, Syrah can be kind of savage, but like a less, like a, like a high tone Syrah, but a little coarser in terms of texture. And there's, there's something almost Italian about it, Italian about it to me. Um, I'm all over the place with yeah. my association. But, uh, <laughs> So anyway, yeah, we'll make a nouveau version out of it, and that's super fun, and you know, just good summer wine. You chill yeah. it and um, drink it by the pool or whatever. So super cool. Um, yeah. How has your taste evolved? So you know, I, I think of you coming to Paso Robles, coming off um, you know your career as a as a brewer, and um, I utterly adore these two wines. And in the interest of full disclosure, you know, I've been in the game long enough to kind of have tasted Paso Robles wine when Paso Robles was just doing like the Zen thing. And those are never wines that I gravitated to. Um, you know, these embody everything I love about wine. You know, they're, they're fresh, you know, they are light on their feet, but really complex. Um, uh, you know, how did your taste evolve as, as you kind of got deeper into this? So it was kind of like, uh, with my beer taste, I, you know, I started brewing pretty early in, in the microbrewery. I mean, not at the beginning by any means, but in the early 90s. And, uh, you know, uh, a lot of times people are making bigger is better, you know. Oh, this is like yeah. the America Fuck Yeah IPA. Yeah, 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 it's just, yeah. well, I mean, I think it's even gotten more kind of that now, but um, yeah. be honest, but even back then, it's like, how many more hops can I jam into this bottle and, and how alcohol can I make it? Can I make a quadruple box? Can I do whatever, you know? Yeah, and yeah. And so I definitely consumed a lot of those beers, you know, early on, but we were a German-style brewery, and, and we made a lot of lighter stuff, lagers, uh, pilsners, um, Oktoberfest, uh, you know, it could be a little maltier and bigger, but, um, but uh, over the years, I just started getting back to just wanting a nice crisp beer, and, it, and maybe it was most of my beer drinking was um, kind of after work, where I was hot and sweaty, and I didn't want to fire down a, you know, a meal. I just wanted to have a nice, refreshing beer. You want to eat your beer. And there was a point where I went into my beer fridge one day, and someone said, like, oh, you got, you got beers? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, let's look in the fridge. And I opened it up. The fridge was completely packed with beers. And I looked in there, and I looked, and I looked. And I'm like, I don't know. I don't really have anything I want to drink right now. You know, it's just all these overblown beers. And, and so that's kind of translated into the wine thing. I just, uh, what I tell people, I don't drink or I don't eat Osobuco every night for dinner, you know, so <laughs> I would love to. Um, Sometimes but, you need a sensible salad. But yeah, it's, you know, every once in a while you got to kind of get out of that. So, and it's the same with wine. I just, I feel like the wines that I am making are the wines I like drinking and, and they, for me, pair better with what I'm eating yeah. and enjoying. And, uh, you know, if I want a glass of wine in the afternoon, you know, on a on a weekend or something, I I don't want to just rip into a big overblown whatever. Same. So uh, yeah. yeah, so um, making these lighter, fresher, more approachable, um, kind of more acidic, generally wines uh, is a lot more appealing to me. And and it's it is breaking a little bit of the mold of what's going on in Paso, but um, but I think you know the trend is going that way to a certain degree, and yeah. and it it's an, it's an age group thing as well. So. But uh, do you do you find people respond well to it, or are certain demographics more open to it than others? Uh, I'd say certain demographics, and also just uh, um, it's more of a hand sale. You know, people are like, yeah. "Whoa!" You know, they try a Cinso, and they just came from a winery where they had you know sixteen percent Syrah or something. Yeah, 
the, you know, they might go, wow. But, you know, we'll have, uh, I've had some wine critics go, oh, man, I can't wait to get to yours. It's like a palate refresher, oh, totally. you know? And I mean, so, it's, like, it's like tasting yeah. with Heights Cellars in Napa. Like, I can't wait to get to the Grignolina. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, um, so anyway, uh, it, you know, it, it's definitely not the most popular <laughs> kind of wines to make but I, I think they work and there's demand for it but you might have to work a little bit harder to find that demand so yeah, yeah. um but so. hopefully hopefully your life is richer for it at the at the end of the day you know i'm just happy to do what i like doing and and really i as i you know i tell people i said if you're not happy doing what you're doing then you need to move on so it's uh it's just the way it goes so um so i have a bit of verse for you and then uh, uh just one more question before we close out and thank you so much for your time today uh this is from uh dana goya uh, who is a proud son of Mexican-Italian immigrants, uh, former poet laureate of California. It's called California Hills in August. I can imagine someone who found these fields unbearable, who climbed the hillside in the heat, cursing the dust, cracking the brittle weeds underfoot, wishing a few more trees for shade. An Easterner especially, who would scorn the meagerness of summer, the dry, twisted shapes of black elm, scrub oak, and chaparral. A landscape August has already drained of green. One who would hurry over the clinging thistle, foxtail, golden poppy, knowing everything was just a weed, unable to conceive that these trees and sparse brown bushes were alive. And hate the bright stillness of the noon without the wind, without motion, the only other living thing, a hawk hungry for prey, suspended in the blinding sunlit blue. And yet how gentle it seems to someone raised in a landscape short of rain. The skyline of a hill broken by no more trees than one can count. The grass, the empty sky, the wish for water. Awesome. Uh, cheers, sir. Uh, uh, just as a last word here. Um, what is so special about Paso Robles? Uh, you know, it feels like there's, there's a little bit of magic there. Um, you know, uh, being from Southern California, but not from Paso itself, you know, um, you know, what makes it, you know, unique? Well, uh, first of all, you know, it is, it, it is younger, but um, the teamwork, I just, everyone wants to help each other out. And the first time I started selling wine out here on the East Coast, I came out with another winery and uh, just to cover more ground, I'd take his wines, he'd take my wines. And we'd introduce our wines first, but then we'd go to the next wines and, and that way we could cover a lot more ground. And I just feel like, uh, you know, we all try and help each other out. Um, so it's, it's you, don't, a, you don't feel like that's changed as the as the region has grown up. No, oh, I awesome. and um, at least I'm you know my I, I will say there's like kind of little pockets because I'm just in my I don't leave the ranch that often. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. but uh, but I, I think it's true all throughout uh, Paso Robles and and a lot of us all talk about community there and it's it's a uh, it's a big community thing and then beyond that as far as uh, varietals and stuff it you know we've got a full salad bar of varietals going on and, and some people are a little bit more linear where it's just like you got your iceberg and you got your dressing whereas you know we've got caper berries and you know whatever else you know so it's a uh, um it's really fun working there because you sniff around you can find all kinds of stuff and um and i just think it makes it you know wine making more interesting when you get to work with these different things so brilliant cheers to the full salad bar yeah uh, so uh thank you uh, uh, so much uh, for joining us, Sherman. Um, thank you uh, to everyone listening to the pod. If you like the sound of what we're drinking, uh, we'll bring in both of these offerings and have them available for sale. Promise. 
uh, at uh, Reveler's Hour, Washington's premier wine and pasta bar directly across the street from our Line Studio Hotels. Uh, as always, thank you for listening. Uh, please stay thirsty and stay tuned for more of the universe in a glass.